Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Wood Talk Online Radio for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are the three guys who actually are under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Welcome to episode 83. Yeah, it's 83. Just double checking. For April, (laughs) everything is wrong in the show notes. It's April 19th, 2011. On today's show, we've got a special live episode for you where all the topics are going to come directly from the... Somebody's fixing it. Thank you, Shannon. Good job. (laughs) That's going to help me now. (laughs) So all of today's topics come directly from the community, either from the forum, from your emails, or from your voicemails. And we'll be discussing the poll of the week sharpening with sandpaper, which is uh, known as scary sharp, uh, planing narrow boards, pairing with the bevel down or possibly the bevel up, and deciding between storing your lumber in the garage or in the basement. Now, of course, we talked last time about our new format where we're going to try and do two recorded shows that are not live and then one live show per month. And then all of your questions and everything will sort of be focused on that last live show. So it's really all about you guys. It should be a lot of fun to do it this way. So let's get right into it, Matt. If you want to give them uh, the contact information, we can get this show on the road. Well, of course I will. You know, as always, there are a few different ways you can get a hold of us. If you ever have a comment, a question, or a suggestion about maybe something you're going to hear on today's show or maybe something you'd like to hear in an upcoming episode, you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at our very own voicemail number, which is 623-242-5180. Of course, you can Skype us at woodtalkonline or you know what? You can head on over, check out our individual sites at mattsbasementworkshop.com, thewoodwhisperer.com, and renaissancewoodworker.com. And especially, you can find us over on the forum at woodtalkonline.com. And just in case you weren't paying attention, much like I very rarely ever do during any one of these shows, we'll have all this information in the show notes. So you can stop on over at the website and check all of that out. Wow, you know, this is the first time I've almost come close to staying exactly within what we have in the show notes for this. Almost. I always somehow managed to go off on something completely different, 
and then kind of kind of like right now. I mean, uh... <laughs> 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 all right. Well, you know, we wanted to uh, shake things up a little bit, and I think we have here. So let's let's jump right into the meat of this good stuff after Matt's wonderful introduction there. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> um, in the forum, you may have noticed in the last few weeks, we've been sort of partnering with Tom's Workbench dot com with Tom Ivino over there. He has a weekly poll, and I thought it would be really cool to bring that poll into the forum and just kind of get a real good perspective on uh, a larger group of woodworkers. And the poll questions vary pretty widely. It's kind of just whatever Tom comes up with each week. Um, So this week, the poll was about card scrapers, and he asked, do you use a card scraper when preparing your projects for finishing? So it's kind of interesting just to see how the community in general looks with something like this. Uh, There were a hundred and I didn't write down a number, 160 something, I think, uh, replies to this. And let's see, here's here's in order of the most popular answer. Forty nine people said I'll use it occasionally. Forty eight people say uh, every single project they use the card scraper. And 46, it's kind of like a three-way tie, just about 49, 48, and 46. Uh, 46 people said, I'll break it out for tricky to tricky to smooth pieces. That's a weird way to say that. In other words, yeah. the pieces that are hard to smooth wind up uh, pulling out the card scraper. And then uh, only 18 said, what's a card scraper? <laughs> Which is nice. Uh, six people said, only when there's no other choice. And six folks also said, I would never use one. So that that's kind of interesting. So about a three-way tie, it seems like it is fairly popular. Either people use it on every project, they use it occasionally, or they break it out for those tricky pieces. So I'm curious how much you use a card scraper in your projects, in your shop. So Matt, uh, why don't you go first? How how often do you use a card scraper? You know, recently, the card scraper is becoming my go-to tool pretty much all the time now. At first, I will admit, it's so funny, for such a simple tool I had years in there where I was completely afraid of this thing. Mm-hmm. It just it scared me to death because it was, again, it's just because it's so simple. It's what it comes down to. It's just that that little burr on there, and it makes this magic. Maybe that's the problem. I thought it was magic. It's almost too good to be true. Scaring me. I mean, when it works right, it's it really is almost too good to be true. You're suspicious of it. Exactly because it's like. Originally, when I did it, I'm like, oh, all I got was sawdust. And then now suddenly I get this burr thingy on there the right way and I'm getting shavings, but I don't have a handle and a tote. So how can that be? Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't work. But uh, to get to the, the heart of the question, yes, I use mine pretty much all the time now. In fact, um, if any sandpaper I have in the house is it'll only go as low as 220 because I almost never use sandpaper when I have an opportunity to use the card scraper. No kidding. That's awesome. Yep. So yeah. Sh- Shannon, what about you? I mean, do you, do you find that most of what you get right off of the smoother is enough? Do you find that you need to use a, a scraper at all? You know, recently it's the smoothing plane has been enough, <clears throat> but I, I've been kind of choosing my wood properly. Right. Not properly. That sounds... Elitist. Strategically. Um, <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Woodman. <laughs> I do it properly, unlike you losers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's try that again. If I had my uh, whole work day to walk around in a wood pile and pull out the best boards. It's true. No, I mean, things like cherry and walnut, I, I just, I haven't needed it. Um, although I've got that big thing of African mahogany that I plan on using for the tool cabinet. I imagine I will probably be grabbing for the scraper there. So I'm probably about 50, 50, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like those really tricky little areas. Like, you know, you run into that, you know, outgrowth of or an echo of a knot or something like that. And you've just got to, I kind of spot smooth it, if you will. Sure. 
Sure. Well, coming from the machining side of things, you come off of a planer or a jointer, and you know that surface isn't ready for finish. And you know, a lot of people don't have a drum sander to get it up to a high grit and save a lot of time. So a card scraper can go from you know really uneven machine marks to finish ready in just a couple of strokes. You know, which yeah. which is pretty insane. So a uh, card scraper is pretty darn important. And uh, if you're not familiar with one, you may want to go out and, you know, look at uh, Lee Valley, Lee Nielsen, Rockler, Woodcraft, any of these stores carry card scrapers. And mm. the the real nuance here is the sharpening method. So I'll, I'll make sure I post a, f- a couple of uh, links to multiple sharpening methods. They all kind of have a similar theme, but everybody seems to put their own personal little touch on, uh, on the technique. And I just recently posted one from William Ng. He did a little demo while I was out at his school. And he just has a, a kind of a traditional rolling the burr method, but he does have a few little details that I think simplify the process a little bit. And he likes a very, very light burr, so you're not really bearing down on that thing. So I'll be sure to post a link to that. But really, if you guys can get one of these in your shop and start using it, it's just it's going to be better for you. It's easier, it's faster, and a lot less dust in the shop air, which is kind of nice. I think what people forget about is the angle, you know, when they're using it, you know, they'll put a burr on and maybe they put a burr in a certain angle and they start using it like, okay, yeah, it's working. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got, uh, you're not getting dust anymore. You're getting a little shaving. And then if you start to play with that angle and suddenly you find that like magic degree and it's like, bam, oh my God, look at this thing. (laughs) It's amazing. I think didn't, didn't William say that in the video too or maybe there was another one i was looking at yeah he did honestly i didn't pay much attention to what he was saying i was still looking at his sharpening station <laughs> that beautiful <laughs> little like bamboo faucet and, yeah that like, thing is amazing sink. it was awesome there should be like little baby koi in there swimming around <laughs> nice. um, yeah, they nibble away the little uh, metal pieces that are just kind of floating around that have come off just dunk your wood and it eats away the tear out yeah no kidding you know actually i should also mention you know as a cousin to the card scraper is something like a uh, number Stanley, what is it? The number 80 cabinet scraper, 80, right? Yeah. Uh, that thing is fantastic, incredibly inexpensive and you sharpen it in a very similar way. But I, I personally find it easier, uh, to sharpen that bad boy because you kind of just, it's got a 45 degree or roughly 45 degree bevel. Uh, and it's very easy to put a burr on that blade. In fact, you can overdo it. And for a long time, I think I was being a little bit too aggressive and I would only use it for, I mean, it would really rip some, some wood off the surface, but I just, uh, I got a demo to do here in Phoenix tomorrow night and I figured that'd be a great thing to show folks how to, how to use that. So let me sharpen it up. And this time I'm going to try just a nice little burr on there, just a real fine burr. And I sharpened the, you know, honed the bevel, flattened the back, treated it basically like a plain blade and then put the burr on it. And just a little baby burr created a, a blade that was so sharp and so smooth that even though I was scraping, I got, I wouldn't say they were 1,000 shavings, but they were pretty darn close to what you would get out of a nice, finely honed smoothing uh, smoothing blade. I mean, it was it was pretty impressive. So I have to take right. some pictures and show you guys that. But you can do that with the card, regular card scraper too, you know, but you don't have any, really any risk of tear out when you do this. So if you have really heavily figured woods, uh, it comes in handy. Well, one thing I like about the cabinet scraper also is it's very much like you have that surface underneath there, so you have a little bit of a a planing uh, feel to it, and by having that that surface uh, that that the the blade is sticking out of Mm -hmm. versus just simply holding a good old-fashioned card scraper – 
I have the tendency of kind of like, oh, there's this spot. I got to stay with it. And I might even dish out a little from using the card scraper in right, one spot right. too long. Kind of like you can do with a sander. If you stay in one spot too long, you'll make that, that nice little dish, which you might not always want. But <laughs> with, with a cabinet scraper, you can kind of keep on going. And it helps to make a, a more level, a more even surface is one thing I definitely noticed. And uh, the other thing that some people, especially this is where it gets into that whole magic-y thing, mm-hmm. because those things get really hot when you're using them. <laughs> yeah. And you burn yeah. your thumbs if you're not careful. And, and, mean, and you usually don't feel it until it's really hot. You're like <laughs> yes, working yeah. by that and you're like, wait, what is that? What it's is totally, that? Yeah, it's totally <laughs> oh a, like, God, that's hot. what is that? Is it white pepper that's like that in food? I know like a black pepper <laughs> hits you hits you first, but white pepper has like a delayed heat reaction. Or I can't remember what it is. Maybe I'm just yeah. making that up. You know, and so you could basically just fry an egg on one. I mean, it's gotten <laughs> yeah. hot before where you just really you take off a few layers of skin and it's it's pretty painful. But back to the whole cabinet scraper thing, that is one thing I really like about that is and on top of it, you, your thumbs aren't stressing out because let's get serious. Totally. So you keep on doing this over a large bo- large board and it, it, it your thumbs are going to get really sore on top of also getting burnt off to just little stubs. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing, I don't know, maybe it's me. It probably is, but I'm going to reach out there. I find that I get better results with my ca- my card scrapers and my cabinet scraper and everything with a harder wood than I do with maybe like a, a softer. Like, like if I use it on poplar, I get good results. But if I use it on, say, um, quarter sawn white oak or uh, any type of hard maple or something, I really get really, really nice shavings off of it versus the poplar. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, you never really hear people using the cabinet scraper that much on a softwood like a pine. I know, I know technically you probably could because I think the Schwartz did. So if the Schwartz did it, you yeah, got to be able yeah. to do it. But It's definitely one of those things where the softwoods tend to just crush under pressure a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I think it's harder for the burr to really get a grip and get under the fibers. It kind of just pushes them down. So it really, especially on a softer wood, you really got to work to find that sweet spot. And you don't want to push very hard. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even on African mahogany, I've had situations where the, the card scraper is just not, it's not working as good, uh, and I'm not getting clean shavings like I would on a piece of hard maple. Right. Yeah. Okay. A lot of it is those alternating um, early wood and late wood bands that you get in softwood, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. The, that late wood is so much denser, and this card scraper, it, it's really hard. It will chatter across the surface a lot more. And you do, whether you realize it or not, I mean, you really are bearing down on that surface and it, you can rip the softwood out real, really easily because you have to push real hard to get to that, that late wood and then you kind of jump into the, the early wood and it just tears the, the crap out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd be an interesting experiment to try like a, a cabinet scraper, a number 80 on softwood. I don't know that I've ever tried to do that. Well, you know, like I said, when I was using, I wouldn't call, obviously, African mahogany softwood, but it's definitely softer, uh, mm-hmm. especially some of the stuff that I've been getting lately. And I've got I've got some poplar, and I might even have some pine. So I've got this freshly sharpened number 80 that I think is ideally sharpened for hardwoods. Um, so I can do a few test runs on some softwood and see what the results are like uh, with the number 80. I'll let you guys know. When you use your car- your card scrapers or even your cabinet scraper, do you use it primarily on the face or do you ever go to the edge? Because just like with, with you know, anytime I'm working on edge or something, sometimes I'm just going to, if I've got it where I want it so that it's nice and square and maybe say flat, preferably uh, all, all across the length. And all I want to do is just touch up that face. Mm-hmm. A cabinet scraper or you know, yeah, a card scraper, 
let's just say scraper. I'm getting confused here with all these C's. <laughs> a, a scraper seems like a, a really good tool for that because all you want to do is just kind of just freshen it up a little bit, maybe remove a single mill mark or something. Um, but maybe depending on how uh, thick the board is, you know, it, it might seem counterintuitive because you've got this. I mean, my card scrapers are usually pretty wide. Yeah, um, yeah. So. I don't know. On an edge, it seems like you could, as long as you have good control, it, it could be a little bit risky. And you know that that yeah. these these things work the best when you flex them a little bit. So of course you're creating a little bit of a scoop uh, right. to get that going. But on certain woods, you know, again, the soft wood might not be a good candidate for this. But if you have a nice hardwood and a four quarter edge, and you just want to kind of lightly scrape it, I might even try. I have done that in the past, and I actually. Uh, with a card scraper, have done more of a pull action as opposed to okay. the push action. Uh, and that way I found that if I have the couple fingers on the back of the scraper and pull toward me, I have a little bit less uh, of an of an opportunity to bend it. And then I also use a, one of the thicker card scrapers to do that. And I find that that gives me, you know, keeps the edge nice and crisp and doesn't round anything over. All right. Well, that brings up another question. Do you push or pull? Because I know you can do both. You just said that you sometimes will pull. And when do you usually do the polling technique? Myself, I usually do the polling technique when my hands are so tired. <laughs> I, say, I can no longer bend it I forward. Say, so then I, I kind of go to the, you know, kind of scoop my hands in there yeah. and then pull it that way. And I still feel like I get, you know, the same results, but it's almost like one of those. I, I feel like it's like I'm, I'm special child learning again. Like, okay, I do this, <laughs> then I'm bringing it to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for me, it's definitely when I'm tired, but uh, I, I do most of it pushing just because I feel like I have better control and i can get a little more aggressive with it um okay what, what about you shannon i'm trying to think if i've ever pulled it before pull it man pull it just hmm. do it it's fun trust me i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know i think i i've usually just pushed um yeah well you'll have to get back can't, to us can't we, i can't add to that i'll go right now yeah, do it right now and come back and tell us well, one more question for you guys because this is one of those like i said i'm, I'm really kind of I would consider myself to be really new to card scrapers because I'm finally at the point where I can put a burr on it and be very happy with it and, more importantly, get a nice result from it. Mm-hmm. When you guys first started using card scrapers, would you say putting that burr on was the most difficult thing and maybe the most intimidating thing? Because you always hear, like, oh, you only need, like, you know, a slight degree on it, just five degrees at the most, and you want to tip, you know, the burnisher just slightly five degrees. I don't know about you, but apparently my brain doesn't work like, okay, this is five and then go. I probably end up coming up like, well, that's my five is probably somebody else's 20. (laughs) I think it's definitely one of the most intimidating factors and why a lot of people buy a card scraper and then it sits there because they've Mm -hmm. never been able to to roll that burr perfectly to the point that it's actually, you know, fully functional. Um, But then, you know, the typical thing that I see a lot of the time is a year later, they see the right tutorial, something clicks and they try it again. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, my eyes are open now. I can actually use this thing. Um, So I think for most people across the board, I would say that the sharpening process is the most intimidating, but I I don't think it should be. I think it's, you know, if you can sharpen uh, a chisel or a plane blade, you certainly can sharpen a card scraper. Right. Yeah, you know, and if you're you're really scared by it or struck by it, I, I remember um, there was a, a woodcraft sale one time. It was one of those things where <clears throat> I had a coupon that was good for only that day, <laughs> and I went down there and and I, I honestly it was one of those weird moments where I just couldn't find anything. It's like everything I wanted that that I went there for they didn't have in stock, and I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know, I could special order it, but I want something today, so I ended up buying. <laughs> one of those Veritas um, 
card. Oh yeah, the multiple bur- burnisher yeah, thing. The, the, yeah, the burnisher bevel thing. Mm-hmm. It's like one of your weaker moments when you truly succumb to the gadget. You know, <laughs> I, I admit I've never bought one of those things that holds the table saw blade in place when you try to loosen the nut. But it's it's about on par with that. You know, <laughs> the little thing, and you you can dial in what angle you want on it. And there's a there's a carbide. A rod in there that as you dial the angle in on the little brass knob on the side, it changes the angle of that carbide rod and you just run it over the edge of the card scraper and it nice. burnishes at a fixed angle. It, I mean, it really is that easy. Yeah. And, you know, then I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast thing. I should probably learn to do it without that. So, you know, after a while, then you just chuck it in a vice and you take a burnisher and you, is it five degrees? Yeah, that's about right. And you go with it. But, you know, if you're really concerned about it, I don't even know how much that thing costs anymore because I've had it for so long. Yeah, but I've got one too. <laughs> it, it really is that easy. You you set it and swipe the thing through and you're good to go. So, well, and I think the, for everything. the real risk uh, if if you're doing this by hand is is not so much which angle you pick. If you're five, six, seven, eight, three, whatever the angle is, I don't think that's nearly as important as you being consistent about it. Because right. if you sort of roll at five degrees on half of the thing and then roll at three degrees on the other part of it and then go back over it again and now you're going at three and then five on the other, you can really just kind of muck it up. Uh, right. well, so- see, that way, the, the one side is tuned for a really, really high angle. <laughs> and, and the other one, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a not, master's class in scraper sharpening. <laughs> let's, let's not open that can of worms. All right. See, there's the bevel up card scraper and the bevel right. down card scraper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and uh, how about the, the gooseneck scraper? That's a, a whole other thing. I mean, people really talk about intimidation for sharpening. That's oh, one thing my, that yeah. even once you know how to sharpen, once you go to a gooseneck scraper, all bets are off because now you're sharpening on a curve. But the, the truth is it's all the same process. You just have to figure out how to do it on a curved surface. Oh, my That's one that I do use a lot. Thinking about it. I use a gooseneck much more than I do a regular card scraper. Really? Yeah, now, now for curves or use it on I flats? I can't use a smoothing plane on a curved surface like that. There you that. go. Okay. Especially a, a concave surface. So sure. the, the right. gooseneck is lifesaver. Makes sense. You know, one other important question to ask is um, I, I believe there's the debate of whether when it comes to the, the, the burnishing portion, uh, do you use the nose grease or the behind the ear grease? Apparently they're very mm. different and people get very, very adamant about which one you should use. <laughs> um, you guys have a preference. I'm just uh, hold it down to the dog, thing. and he licks the edge, and we're good. <laughs> oh, there you go. I'm, I'm Italian, so I pretty much touch it anywhere on my body, and, and I've got access to uh, olive oil all the time. Yeah, I pretty much kind of a, a similar situation <laughs> myself, so oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Now, let's, uh, I, I have a question for Mark based oh, yeah. on something you said earlier. Um, what wood have you been working with lately that African mahogany is soft? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering the same thing too. Okay, Are you like making lignum furniture or something. Or? Uh, purple heart, babinga, and Honduran mahogany. All right, I would put all in a, in a class. Well, I'm going to say significantly harder. Um, you know, they're put it this way: if I can put a African mahogany tabletop on a set of uh, painters' pyramids, and just by the weight of the workpiece itself, I turn it over and I see dents. That's a wood that's definitely softer than I'm used to. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, and I do work a lot with, you know, I mean, you know me with the, the Summer of Wangi and uh, mm-hmm. Hatoba and all, I mean, there, there's just a lot of, you know, uh, exotics that I wind up playing with a lot. So that stuff so, is I really, mean, really good. Granted, nice. there's a lot of variations between African mahogany, but the most common stuff we see over here is like 1300 the Janka hardness is around 1300. So. Well, there have been boards where I've, you know, it's all African mahogany, but one 
board of comparable size weighs twice as much as the other. Yeah. You know, so I've seen, you know, Ivory Coast or Senegalese or, I mean, there's so many different variations of it. And a lot of times they all, you know, when you import it, you'll import from one particular sawmill or Mm -hmm. or many different sawmills. And then it comes in into the States and it may get mixed up because it's all African mahogany. And then as it ends up into a lumber yard, they may have seven different variations of African mahogany. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it all comes down to density and soil, um, composition and everything yeah it's almost too much variation though i guess it depends on your supplier but when i go out to uh to the william ing school and he's got a nice supply of uh, african mahogany a lot of times in the pile you know just in this one batch that was purchased together um you you really have to be careful about which boards you pick to not only color match them but to to literally density match them you know just some of them are uh are more beefy than others well african Uh, mahogany is technically the dunnage of the african hardwoods mm -hmm. so it's it's bottom feeder stock. There you go. That's what we like. That's yeah. What we like here yeah. at Wood Talk Online, bottom feeder stock. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our voicemail. We do have one voicemail uh, from Aaron, and it's uh, sort of about sharpening. So let's uh, let's take a listen. Hi. Um, my name is Aaron. I'm a woodworker in Watertown, Wisconsin. I've got a question for you about sharpening. I was watching a woodworking TV show the other day, and uh, they were showing onto the chisel sharpening, and they said that you really don't need to grind it. You can just hone it, hone the bevel after flattening the back. Well, they showed, uh, it actually looked like water stones made out of MDF, though, that they put water dry sandpaper on top um, and then use that instead of buying water stones or oil stones or something like that. Um, any comments on that? Do I need to grind them? Oh, do you think this would work? Bye. Okay, so we tried to figure out exactly uh, what Aaron is asking here. It sounds like at first he's concerned about whether or not you should grind a bevel. Now, here's the thing. I mean, it it depends on what you're starting with, right? I mean, if you've got a really old chisel that's in bad shape where you have a need to change the angle of that bevel, you're going to need to grind it. Otherwise, you're going to be there for a real long time um, trying to to do that through standard methods with stones and whatnot. Yeah, if you've got nicks and dings in the edge, you can can hone forever. Or or you have somebody like me who had it beforehand and has this really (laughs) weird grind on it in the first place. You're like, what is that, like 50? (laughs) What a 50-degree bevel. It's very... uh, uh, it's very um, resistant to breaking at 50 degrees. It's, it's you just can't do edge. anything with it. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, basically, we don't know what he was watching and what the advice actually was. So it's hard to say for sure. So depending on the situation, yeah. you might need to grind. But if you're already, you know, if you bought a reasonably decent chisel and it's already at a uh, a decent angle that you're happy with, yeah, you can get away with just honing and working on stones. Or, which is the second part of his question, uh, he asked about using sandpaper. Now, there's a method out there called Scary Sharp is kind of the, the name that it's been given, and it involves using sandpaper on a flat surface, typically plate glass or something like that, and you sort of stick it down to the surface and sharpen through the various grits that we have access to, and typically it's, you know, what, what's the highest um, wet-dry sandpaper that you can get? Is it 4,000? Uh, I know 2,000 is relatively easy to find. Higher than that tends to be a little harder. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 the highest I ever went up to was 2,500, but I know 
at the auto place because I went to an auto paint shop to get it. He had yeah the higher grades. I think four thousand. That sounds about right because I remember hmm. the, for the one sheet it was going to cost way more than all the other sheets that I had purchased previously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it seems like every time I found something above two thousand, it's been in like a pad. Yeah, soft. Yeah. 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 Like well, those Merca pads. Exactly. Yeah. So so well, basically, I'm, I'm curious. I'm assuming they were just demonstrating the scary sharp thing mm-hmm. because. If I'm going to put sandpaper on MDF, I am not going to wet it. That's a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could just <laughs> go with a, a, a spray, you know, sort of a temporary spray adhesive. But then MDF just all around for Scary Sharp doesn't seem like a great uh, surface to use. I mean, yeah, even with that I mean, adhesive that be, there. You get that stuff wet and that's not good. Exactly. At least with glass, you can use some kind of solvent to, to clean it up between uses. Right. Maybe they had the glass on top of the MDF. Or what about the the diamond paste? I mean, I know he had mentioned the the, well, the sandpaper that you would, thing. That you would see on MDF, right? Right. That's what I was thinking. Because I know sometimes you'll put it like on a maple, but mm-hmm. you know, because um, with the diamond paste, you don't you don't wet it. You just use it as yeah. the this itself, right? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I wish I knew what he was watching, but. Uh, to, to, you know, basically the scary sharp method and sandpaper sharpening, whether it's using the work sharp system or you're just using sandpaper is certainly a very viable way to do it. There's no reason you can't do it that way. You'll find that most people who get into sharpening frequently quickly graduate to something else simply because who wants to keep buying sandpaper all the time. Um, and plus you can get to, we were just talking about the grits, you know, it's hard to find anything over 2000. So if you really want to polish up an edge, you know, up to 8,000 or sometimes higher for crazy people, um, (laughs) you know, you, you want stones, you know, you want polishing stones and water stones and oil stones. Uh, and they last, I mean, for the hobbyist stones last forever, you know, it's really only someone who's doing, you know, insane amounts of sharpening that you're going to really run through those things. Um, so uh, yeah, Scary Sharp is viable. So I'm curious, did either of you start with Scary Sharp and then graduate to something else, or have you even tried it at all? Uh, Shannon, go ahead. Uh, I mean, I've tried it, but yeah. I mean, frankly, I went straight to to Waterstones. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think starting, you know, starting woodworking when I did, there was already a lot of information for Waterstones. Right. Um, I don't. I don't even remember thinking much about it. It was like, okay, well, I'm supposed to use Waterstones and I just went with it. Um, <laughs> uh, I've used Gary Sharp like when I've been to classes and things mm-hmm. and they've got like a setup there. Right. Um, and I, I think I think it's a great system. Uh, I am a fan of a hollow grind personally. Um, and and to, to address that, I think that might be part of his question as well. Should I grind or should I just go straight to the stones? If you go to mm-hmm. the stones or the sandpaper, whatever, you get a flat grind. So there is not that little curvature hollow that comes from the wheel itself. I, I like a hollow grind because lately I've been um, freehand sharpening. I just find it's easier to register the bevel. Mm-hmm. Anyway, tangent. tangent. Well, let's, do, let's do this. Let's define what, what the hollow grind is because I know between the, the three of us, we, we know what that is. But maybe for somebody like Aaron, if this is what he's talking about, you know, that, that idea of, of seeing what the, the grind is. So when you when you say hollow grind, what what exactly do you mean by that? Just... Well, you take a flat surface and mm-hmm. hold it up against a curved surface. And okay. if a curved surface is grinding away the flat surface, eventually the flat surface will become curved. So if you hold your chisel up against your stone, your grinding stone, and you grind the bevel on your grinding stone, the flat edge, the flat bevel of your chisel is going to assume the shape of your grinding stone. It's going to take on that same radius. 
Right. So the grinding stone will essentially grind away the middle and you've got a very slight curvature on the bevel. So now when you put that bevel flat down onto that sandpaper, there's a little hollow in the middle Mm -hmm. between the tip of the chisel and the top edge of the bevel. Um, That hollow section in the middle is what's known as a hollow grind. And when you're freehand sharpening, now when you register that bevel, you've got two solid points of connection and there's nothing in the middle. So the chisel kind of just locks in place and you get, you can get a really, really good registration to just move it around without a jig. Um, At the same time, you're talking about a time saver idea. Um, If you ever look at a Japanese chisel on the back of it, it's got those grooves that's relieved sections of the flat part of the chisel. Um, And if you try to flatten that, there's much less steel to remove because you've got those hollows in the middle. Same idea with the hollow grind. Now, when you go to the stones or the sandpaper or whatever, you're sharpening right at the very tip and right at the very top of the bevel. And you're not having to remove any of the steel in the middle. And it's just a heck of a lot faster in the long run. Now, you you brought up Japanese chisels, and we should probably mention that Japanese chisels are the one exception where you really don't want a hollow grind. Um, The way the steel is folded in a Japanese chisel, doing a hollow grind can actually um, dramatically weaken it. So they always seem to recommend going with a standard flat bevel and not a hollow grind uh, on those, uh, Japanese style, but on any of my Western really? style, I've, I've never heard that before. Interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lots of, uh, like the hardcore, you know, Japanese tool users will tell you never, never, uh, hollow grind a Japanese chisel. Um, hmm. yeah. And I mean, when you start to, to look at the back of the chisel, you could really see the layers of, of steel and how it was folded over and yeah. constructed. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. I guess I'd never thought about it. I'm not a Japanese chisel user. So, yeah. So I've got, I've got both. So I make sure that I, I never do that to my Japanese chisels, but my Western chisels, my uh, marbles set, uh, love the hollow grind. It just saves you time. And like you said, if you're going freehand, makes it a lot easier. I still don't go freehand, but that's it's interesting a, though. I, I'm sorry. I'm stuck on no, this. Go ahead. I, I took a sharpening class and there was a guy that was like, he was a um he was a he might as well have been a japanese american I mean, he was american as anything but he he almost looked japanese he lived in japan for so long and he studied under a master carpenter mm-hmm. i swear he hollow ground it's certainly possible you know it, this is wilbur in the chat room this is woodworking yep. so yeah, he is i'm just repeating what i see that what people have oh, taught and, me. and i'm not trying to call you out i'm just i'm really curious now um, no the bottom line is it's he says uh, wilbur says that's true about not hollow grinding a japanese chisel I mean, the really? bottom line is it's cool. woodworking. It's there are you can do whatever you want to do, and things will probably still work, you know. But it's a matter of if you're going for the ideal, and someone you know tells me not not to do the hollow grind, I'm just gonna you know follow what yeah. they tell me to do. Well, I guess I could see that <laughs> they know better than the you know, layers of steel. If you hollow grind it, you're gonna you're weakening it, weakening that bond, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, just an uh, interesting caveat. Now, the, the thing with the hollow grind in the back of a Japanese chisel, which you don't see on the Western style chisels, is really because when you're honing these things, even, you know, any chisel to hone the back and really get that dead flat takes some time. You know, that's that's a heck of a process, especially if it's really way out. Um, yeah. With a Japanese steel, you're looking at a much harder steel and it takes even longer so those hollows in the back really save time because all you have to flatten are the points that are making contact with the stone uh, as opposed to this entire flat bevel like you would have on a Western-style chisel. So it really speeds things up. But I think seeing a hollow on the back might confuse some people into thinking that a hollow would be uh, okay on the bevel. 
It's kind of yeah. interesting. There's some pretty big Japanese chisels out there too. You imagine trying to flatten the back of a five inch wide you know, <laughs> yeah. chisel. But dude, they look so cool when you flip them over and you see the series oh, yeah. of uh, hollows. I love that. <laughs> cool. All right. So I think, uh, so that, that pretty much covers that. Uh, bottom line right. is there's so many ways to sharpen. Just pick one and stick with it because that's really the key is to get good at doing one particular method. And, uh, and you can always change later. But I think scary sharp is probably the least investment to get started. Um, it is, yeah. Just starting out with just just some basic paper and a nice flat surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll go from there. Of course, the the big thing I always ran into because that's exactly where I started out when I first started sharpening is uh, occasionally when you rip through the paper. Like you said, it's frustrating because then you got to rip it off. You got to put a new one down. Yeah, and that's when you really start going, yeah. "Hey, these water stones, those are really cool." <laughs> or these diamond plates, that's even cooler. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it, it's it. It's the stepping stone method is what they should really call it. No pun uh. intended. Um, I'm curious, <laughs> both of you, do you both use water stones now? Yes. Yep. Okay, me too. Yeah. Three for three. Yeah, I, I just moved well, from, and, uh, from mean, king I, stones. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I've heard a lot of good things about king stones, actually. Well, I went from the, the, the king stones, at least that's what it says on the side of them. It says king, so I'm assuming they must be the king stones. <laughs> but uh, I moved up to just recently this past year, um, I got the... Oh my God! What do you call them? The ones, uh, the, the glass ceramic kind of a thing. Chapton. Chapton Thank stones. you. Yeah. See, I just I turned forty this past weekend, and my brain has said, "You know what? All it's downhill. time to start acting 80. <laughs> Shaptons are great. That's what I use. Love my Shapton stones. Yes. I still use diamond stones. I still have a couple DMT. I've got one of those die sharp ones um, okay. in the the lower grits, and then I've got an extra coarse. I think it's extra coarse. The black one. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the colors for DMT stones. They're all <laughs> lower grit things. Um, and that and that actually, you know, is part of my evolution in sharpening is I didn't used to go with a hollow grind. I used to do a flat grind, but I used stones for that. Uh, it's only in the last couple of years or so that I started using hollow grind. And now I've gone total off the deep end and I have a hand cranked grinder for my hollow grinds <laughs> just because I'm, I'm a, yeah. I'm I hear a rumor that Shannon is currently constructing a 14 foot diameter uh, grinding wheel so that he can uh, get it as flat as possible just with a little bit of a, a hollow in there, you know? Those things I, are scary, by the way. Those yeah, full size grinding stones, those treadle driven grinding stones, you yeah, get that thing turning and the whole like the trough that it sits in starts to vibrate <laughs> and everything and you're like, okay, now stick the chisel into that. I'm like, you stick the chisel in yeah. that. I'm not going near that thing. Yeah, the whole it's concept scary. of grinding is really scary when you think about it. It's like, I'm going to jam this really sharp object into <laughs> this right. very quickly spinning <laughs> wheel of stone. You know, it's uh, uh, definitely a little bit, and it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. And by the way, I am pedaling right now to keep the computer going. That's good. You don't have someone yeah. for that? You should have like a Gilligan in the back on the bike. <laughs> Gilligan, little buddy. You must be in amazing <laughs> shape because I could not tell one bit in your voice. Nice. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, jump into our email. We've got two emails today that we can read. And one is fresh from the email box. Came in uh, this afternoon. Oh, it's and, smoking hot. Yeah, hot. This one is from Julian in San Jose, California. He says, Hi, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. I have a couple of questions. I was not able to find an answer on the internets. I'm hoping you guys will know. Uh, We'll take both of these. uh, Well, I'll read them both, and then we'll go back and address each one individually. He says, sometimes in magazines or books, I see people using their chisels with a bevel down when pairing. I always use my chisels with the bevel up, and I sort of wonder what benefit there is to use them with the bevel down. And number two, when hand planing a narrow strip of wood, I notice that I often end up getting a wedged profile. 
For some reason, I seem to have a tendency to tilt the plane towards me at the beginning of the strip and away from me at the end of the strip, so the strip becomes twisted. Any remedy beyond just playing, paying close attention to my body's biomechanics? And he says, uh, by the way, your respective podcast inspired me, and I posted a tutorial on how to hand cut through dovetails on my own website. This was my third try at cutting dovetails, and I'm pleased with the results. And he should be, because the results were yeah. great. <laughs> and a great little tutorial he has there. So I'll post the, the link for this in the show notes, and you guys can cool. check that out. So that's uh, Julian from San Jose. So let's jump back to his first question concerning uh, the pairing action. And uh, I wrote Julian back and, and gave him a quick reply, but I'll sort of repeat what I said before. Um, for me personally, I try to pair whenever possible with the bevel up just to take advantage of the reference surface that the bottom of the chisel, the back of the chisel provides you with. That's kind of the the gist of it. That's what you, as far as I you know, see it, that's what I want to do. If I'm using the bevel as a reference surface, there's just not as much there to reference from. But in some situations, you just can't get your hands or the chisel to be on a flat surface. If you're like right. inside of something, let's say, you have to approach it at a high angle. And that's what the bevel uh, excels at doing if you're trying to just do some very careful pairing. But you do need to be careful because it's much easier to gouge the work that way. Um, so at least for me, that's when I do it most of the time. If I can pair with the bevel up and use the flat of the chisel, that's the way I'm going to do it. If I can't, I'll think about doing it the other way. Sometimes I try to find some other method uh, that doesn't involve using the chisel because a lot of times that's a it's a hard thing to control just using the bevel as reference surface. So, um, right. Shannon, I'm curious, you know, how often you wind up using well, the bevel. I wonder, is it called pairing when the bevel is down? Because I, I find myself doing it a fair amount, but it's for rough removal. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's the, you know, the Carabini method or the, the Nicholson method where, you know, you put your shoulder behind it and excavate out a rabbit using just the chisel. Um, cause essentially you're dealing with a hand plane at this point. Mm -hmm. A hand plane is nothing more than a chisel held at a fixed angle, right. um, a bevel down hand plane for that matter. So when you put the bevel down, yeah, it's a much easier to gouge the wood because generally the chisel wants to bite more. It wants to take a deeper cut. Whereas pairing, you know, it's all about very light, you know, minimal removal. And, and you're right. Referencing that flat back is usually what you're wanting to do. Right. Whereas, you know, referencing the bevel only gives you that little bit of a, a section. I guess it's still considered pairing because it's, you know, you're not whacking it with a, a mallet or something like that. But really, you know, there are those times like when you're in the middle of a board and you can't, you can't lay the chisel flat unless you've got one of those one of those things, the cranked neck chisels. Right. Um, which one of these days I'm going to get me one of them. But, um, <laughs> the, you know, you, you can't, you can't do anything there. Um, that's why you'll see a lot of pairing chisels have those really long blades so that you can reference all the way in. But I think the minute you flip that bevel down, um, it becomes kind of a different action and the, pl the, the plane, the chisel wants to remove more wood. Right. So I don't know. I find what I call that pairing or not. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it can be sort of a pairing action, you know, if you're just trying to get a nice clean slice, but it's also similar to planing in that sense, like you said. So um, for me, I know to avoid the gouging, what I like to try to do is almost scoop it up so that the I'm pushing down on the handle just a little bit. Yeah. So I'm more than anything resting on the back of the bevel so that if worst case scenario, something slips, my bevel is coming up off the workpiece as opposed to getting driven down further into it. It's an excellent way to trim things flush, by the way, or not even necessarily flush, but say you've, um, <clears throat> you know, you've pegged something, you've put a, a peg in a mortise and tenon, 
and you want to kind of pillow the edge or put that kind of pyramidal look so it's uh, proud of the surface, mm -hmm. coming in bevel down. And like you just said, Mark, you kind of choke up on the chisel so your fingers are down right by the edge, um, by the bevel, and then using your other hand kind of pivot the chisel down and it will grab the wood and it it cuts in an upward motion. Um, right. You see a lot of chair makers do that, um, those through tenons on armrests and things like that. It's a very, very fast way to remove wood cleanly mm -hmm. um, to leave that kind of cool looking proud peg or through tenon or whatever you want to call it. Sure, sure. Um, Matt, I'm going to switch to number two here, the second part of his question. He's kind of creating wedges on narrow strips of wood. Um, I imagine for anybody who's relatively new to planing and, you know, even someone who's got some experience may be challenged with this once in a while, uh, how to get that, you know, perfectly flat and smooth board. So uh, I'm curious, he wants to know if it's really just a biomechanics issue or if there's any tricks. So how would you have dealt with that or, or did you deal with that during your learning process? What do you mean, did I? Of course I do. Or, are, <laughs> still are still dealing with that. What I'm thinking is, this is probably the same reason why my, my hand plane soles were uh, bananaed. Is I, th I think it's more or less one of those, as he's stepping into it, he's allowing his body to turn slightly. So if he would hold his arms more in a, a tight position, perhaps, uh, depending, I guess, on the, on the plane, how, he, how he's going to do this, but kind of lock those in and then move with the plane, uh, he probably would find that he's going to get a better result. I know for myself, that's one of my big things. I will wrestle occasionally where I get a nice shaving at the beginning of a uh, uh, an edge that I know for a fact is jointed nice and straight and nice and square. And all I want to do is just maybe remove a little bit of material because for whatever reason, I got a mar or something in there. And sometimes I'll start out and I'll get this nice shaving at the beginning. And then by the time I get to the end, there's almost nothing there or it's, it's, it's much thinner than it was at the beginning. And half my problem with that is I'm not staying for myself a locked position yeah. with the hand plane. And so it's a matter of, I have a feeling what he's, what he's doing is as he's starting, as he said, he's, he maybe has it more towards his body and then he's standing in one locked position and pushing the plane away. And as he's doing that, he's probably pushing the, for the, the blade itself away from his body and that's why right. he's kind of getting this this result from it. So I suggest that you – it's like a dance. You stay right with your partner from beginning to end, especially on a long board. If it's a short one, stand in the middle. Kind of stand in the middle a little bit and move from there. But on a long one, you want to stay with that hand plane at all times, maintaining the pressure from beginning to end. And I think you'll probably find that the result is not going to be what you're doing right now. Now, I, I think I may have misread what he said here, because initially I just thought we were talking about a wedge profile. But if you read the second half of his email, he says the strip becomes twisted, almost like he's leaning on one side or the other. Right. So, um, mm. Shannon, I'm curious, if, for, from your perspective, if he is getting a twist, so let's say as he's starting the, the, the stroke, he's sort of pushing toward the right, and then as right. he's ending, he's pulling toward the left. Um, right. is this a biomechanics, pure biomechanics thing, or is there something he can do almost like training wheels to give him better results? Well, you know, certainly you, you never want to blame the tool, but, I do. um, you know, it depends <laughs> on what tool you're using. I do it you know? all the time. <laughs> um, check to make sure the tool's good first. Is yeah. there a problem with the sole? Is your blade perfectly aligned? Maybe you need to play with a lateral, lateral adjuster, um, because you, maybe the 
the, the blades crooked a little. Um, there is a tendency. I, I personally think everybody's got a natural direction they lean towards, uh, which, by the way, we should find this and link to it. Carrie Holtman has a phenomenal blog because, of course, all of her blogs are phenomenal. But mm -hmm. she's got a I think it's called leaning to the left. Um, there is just a natural direction that people tend to lean towards. Mm -hmm. um, if you're squaring up an edge or whatever, more often than not, you end up with the high side or the low side on the same side of the board, every single board you go with. It's just kind of your body's, you know, out of squaredness, uh, telegraphing itself back to the board. Um, it could be that he is, I, I think Matt's more on here where he's, he's trying to play with his arms too much. Um, and he's extending his body. And the minute you do that, you lose kind of that center of balance. So he could very easily be um, tilting to the left or the right and introducing twists to the board. Mm -hmm. Just because you think about it, if you were to plane and extend your arms all the way out in front of you, you know, th it's very difficult to balance laterally along that line. Whereas if you pull take your planing arm, your left hand, your right hand, whatever hands on the tote and kind of lock it against your body. You're grounded, you're centered. You've got, you know, that's you're right at your center of gravity there, kind of right around the navel area. The minute you push out in front of it, you're really tippy and you can go left, right, forward, back, whatever. Um, and he may just be his own body mechanics, maybe um, exaggerating that natural lean if his body naturally wants to lean to the left, well, now that he's way out on the end there, you know, he's, he's exaggerating him a little bit more. Um, eliminate the problem of the plane first. Make sure the plane is good, everything's adjusted properly. The other thing I'll say is try to match your plane to your board. Um, if you're, you know, planing a, a shorter board and trying to use a big, long joiner plane, um, you might end up tipping a lot more because mm. there's obviously much more sole in front of the blade on a joiner plane. And if you've got you know, eight inches of playing hanging off the end of the board, your your tendency is to gonna tip the blade a little bit more. Right. It doesn't sound like that though. It sounds like he's just got a narrow strip that's longer. Um and the the best bet is to just like Matt said, I couldn't agree more, kind of keep close into the body and move the plane by walking the blade along. And now I say that and I catch myself doing it. Usually happens when you start to get tired. Um you've been <laughs> trust me from personal experience you've been planing boards all day long yeah <clears throat> this last weekend and by the end of it you're like holy crap you know just get me through this last board yeah and your technique just goes out the window yeah, um, yeah it could be so. tough um all right well that sounds good and let's i think we should probably just move on to the next email uh, this one, this was cool because this one is right in my wheelhouse recently dealing with wood storage. And this one is from Jim and uh, I'll just read this real quick. He says, Hey guys, I wanted to get your thoughts on lumber storage options. And he says, Mark, your recent video on storage rack was timely. I recently purged a bunch of old wood that I was accumulating from various DIY projects, small pieces of pine, 2X stock, etc., to make room for some four quarter and six quarter red oak that I purchased for a project. Now I'm thinking of better ways to store the wood. I'd love to build a altered version of what Mark did in the recent video. My options are to build one in the garage, which is unheated and uninsulated, or in the shop itself, which is in my basement. And he says that it can get a little water uh, after a good rain. Not flooding, but enough to cause a humidity spike. I live in Massachusetts, where we have cold, dry winters and hot, humid summers. And he has a little list of pros and cons as he sees it. So for the garage, he's got more room. 
uh, subject to wider temperature swings and the seasonal humidity changes are, are there, but there are less spikes uh, than in the basement. Now, in the basement, he has less room. There's less of a temperature swing, depending on the season, uh, and the humidity norm is about 45%, but after a good rain or snow melt uh, with the water in the basement, it can spike up to 65 to 70, and he said the highest he ever measured down there was 85%. And he says he does have a dehumidifier and a couple of windows. He can open up uh, the windows and put some fans on if that helps to bring everything back to normal. So he just wants our opinion, uh, garage or basement, if you've got the choice. And he's, you know, sort of got a typical Northeast uh, climate to deal with. So uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, you guys are probably more equipped to answer this because you're dealing with a very similar climate to that. So Matt, let's go to you first. What do you think, garage or basement in this case? You want know, to be honest with you, uh, if I had the choice, I would probably want to go more with the garage. And, and it doesn't have so much to do with that big humidity swing that he's talking about Mm -hmm. the only thing i would be concerned with anything anytime there's a humidity swing is i'd be concerned about any mold or fungus growing on my my boards but if everything's properly dried it's been properly uh, he's probably gonna work with kiln dried i mean most of the time when we're getting our lumber nowadays it's already kiln dried or it's been if it's been air dried more than likely uh, unless you did it yourself you have it uh properly seasoned so that it's down to uh, the percentages that we most likely would would use this, like the eight to ten percent range. Sure. Um, I I just I, I at least I've never had it, and being in a humid area, I've never had uh, my kiln dried wood suddenly spike back up to you know like fifteen percent or anything. My biggest concern, like I said, is any mold or mildew or fungus or anything like that growing on my boards. But then again, if I had that issue, if I was afraid of that, I would just make sure that I would sticker them so that there's more airflow around it. Mm-hmm. I really like the idea of going to, if I had the space in my garage, which maybe if I just didn't park my car in the garage, but I'm funny like that, uh, I would like to have it in the garage just because it's easier to bring in and um, I would get a way more airflow through my garage than I do my basement. And I think that airflow is probably the most important thing, especially if you're storing long term and by long term i mean up to a year or more because i've got wood in in my shop right now that's well over it's a couple years old and that's my number one concern again is going back to the the mold and mildew issue um yeah well it's i mean regardless of the the highs and the lows the high humidity low humidity the most important thing is like you said the airflow is to make sure that the wood can acclimate and change with the conditions Mm -hmm. you get into a situation i'm thinking a basement is almost like a place where you can trap moisture. So if there is a point where things are really wet, it's going to be harder for that wood to lose the humidity and the moisture that it picked up in a basement environment than it would be in a garage environment where there's just more air exchange with the outdoors. Um, right, right. Shannon, what, what do you think? You're the, you're the lumber store guy. Well, look at it this way. Um, how many lumber yards do you know that are climate controlled? <laughs> That's a good point. That's a great um, point. Mm-hmm. We have um, uh, seven some million board feet in the lumber yard, um, all in sheds. And, you know, yeah, they're in sheds and they have a cover over them, but those big wide open sides and we have tarps that we can <laughs> drop, no, but we never no doors. do. <laughs> you know, the key is that the air flows through them. Um, even in some of our deeper sheds where we've got three and four bays deep, we've got fans set into the dividers in between the, the bays that, that aren't. Um, they're not really on or running. They just kind of 
spin as breeze blows through them and they just kind of help facilitate airflow through those bays. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like today, it rained all day today and there were several times when the wind was blowing, it was raining sideways and the, the wood's getting wet, you know, and, and yeah, who cares if it's mahogany or ipe or whatever, because that stuff is, you know, exterior wood anyway, but you know, the maple and the cherry and the walnut was getting wet. Um, and it'll dry, you know, as long as there's air flowing through it. So, um, yeah, it's supposed to be something like 80 degrees tomorrow and it was 50 degrees today and it just is what it is. Right. You know, I, I think, and, and Matt hit it on the head originally, once it's been kiln dried, um, you know, it's going to stay drier unless you, you know, submerge the water for a long period of time, it's going to be okay. And I think if you stick it in the basement and you get a little bit of water in there and you get that humidity spike, probably it's going to take a lot longer for the humidity to um, normalize, I guess, in a basement like that. Yeah. But, you know, I think you, Matt kind of hit it real quickly, but I think the biggest issue is hey, it's a heck of a lot easier to move lumber in from the yard into the garage yeah. than it is down the stairs into the basement. You know, and if if your shop is in the basement, then grab your wood you know, that you're going to build for your project, take it down there and, you know, set it off to the side, um, but keep your wood storage upstairs, yeah. you know, bring it down, what, two weeks earlier or whatever to kind of acclimate or right. even a couple of days earlier to let it acclimate and, and you'll be fine. All right. Sounds good. Um, I do want to go over one iTunes review that we got since the last one. And uh, just to give you a heads up, if anyone uses iTunes, you could look us up at Wood Talk Online and go there and give us a, a nice five-star rating that makes us feel good about ourselves, makes us feel like we have friends. And uh, <laughs> It's so nice. And on top of it, it gives you a chance to hear your name on air because yep. we're not giving you anything else. That's right. That's all you get. Can, Merry Christmas. Can I just, can I just interrupt real quick? Sure. I think we're experiencing a Wood Talk Online first. Well, one of our members in the chat room is in the middle of a tornado, and he's still listening. So thanks, Tim. <laughs> that is devotion. For staying on the line here. Um, you ain't kidding, I man. I just keep seeing this pop up in the chat room, and it's like, you know, we've got, we've got people monitoring <laughs> Google Earth, watching the approach of the storm, and then Tim suddenly chimes in, yeah, I'm in the middle of it right now. It's like, that's uh, That's devotion combined with a little bit of craziness, and we thank, we thank you for that, Tim. Thanks for, for listening to Wood Talk Online. Yeah, just uh, I hope... <laughs> Wow, I hope everything's okay. And uh just grab the nearest uh the nearest pole or stand. Yeah, hang on to the table saw, that should be fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's probably not going anywhere. All right. Well, aside from Tim's uh impending uh storm over there, let's uh, read this review real quick from Lemon Jello. And he says, Listening to these two, now three, babble about all things woodworking since episode one. Great content and format. I like the long episodes, even when they get a little tangent going off into the distance. Shannon is a great addition to the lineup. Another hand tool geek to keep the craft going. If you're really into woodworking or just building something once in a while, this podcast will get you into the groove or dado for woodworking. That's funny. Did he Very, say that? That's what groove he said. Or dado? That's exactly what he said. Wow. So, that's witty. Yeah. So thank you, Lemon Jello. We really appreciate that five-star review. And again, go to iTunes and look us up and leave us a nice review there. And it kind of helps us get up in the rankings a little bit. Uh, so uh, we appreciate that. You know, I had a moment there where I watched The Hangover again this weekend. And when I heard the thing, these two, now three, I suddenly had a flashback to the beginning of my wolf pack went from one to two. And then now I have three or four. Dude, I have a, a one man wolf pack shirt that I wear once in a while. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, all right. Enough about movies. Um, let's, uh, I guess, close it out with uh, some contact information and we'll let these kids get out of here. All right, especially uh, 
head into your shelter if you need to if you're in that storm. <laughs> yeah. But more importantly, here's how you get a hold of us. If you, you know, there's a couple different ways: comment, question, suggestion, something you've heard in today's show, or maybe something you'd like to hear on an upcoming episode. Especially these live ones. Remember, these live ones are dedicated to you, the listeners. It's all about you, not us. You. Okay, a little bit about us, but mostly you. Okay, a lot of us. Anyways, email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 623-242-5180. Skype us at woodtalkonline. And, of course, don't forget to check out our individual, uh, our individual sites at madsbasementworkshop.com, thewoodwhisperer.com, and Renaissance Woodworker. And especially head on over to the forum at woodtalkonline.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Wow. Yeah, we would for sure. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Another great live show, and you can expect another one next month. And between now and then, we will have a couple of episodes of uh, a recorded version, a non-live version of Wood Talk Online for you to enjoy. And I look forward to doing that with you two gentlemen. Thank you for joining me, and thanks to the chat room for hanging out with us. We always appreciate that on a Tuesday night. And, hey, I just want to put it out there. We had a couple folks request that we do the show an hour later for those who are on the East Coast with children. And specifically, I, by a couple people, I mean uh, Diami. Diami. Right. <laughs> and uh, we definitely want to know uh, your opinions. I mean, basically, we try to move it around so it's convenient. Uh, we don't really worry so much about our convenience. Bottom line is it's going to be around 5 or 6 o'clock my time and uh, 8 or 9 o'clock uh, East Coast. So I'm curious if, uh, if moving it an hour back would be better for anyone or if anyone would have any major objection to it. Uh, just leave us a... A link in the or a, uh, a comment in the comments section. Let us know what you think about the time frame for the live show, uh, the right. re- recorded show. We can do anytime we want, which is nice. Right? Yeah, because yeah. we might actually be doing one right after this, and you guys won't know. Ha ha ha! There we go. <laughs> exactly. All so right. Get your questions and send your emails in for the next live show, because otherwise we got nothing to talk about. Word up! And uh, you know, I'm sure we could probably waste. Oh, yeah, we'll minutes. come up with something. Hey, I do also want to mention that the first week of May is safety week again. So I put up a post on my website about uh, asking for any specific safety questions that you might have that I might be able to answer in video form. But I also want to throw out there if anybody has any quick tips and somebody sent me a couple of quick safety tips today that were really, really good. Um, and I think things like that would be very cool because I could almost show them on the show and certainly give you credit for it. But if you have just a quick, simple safety tip, just let me know and, uh, I'll be able to share that with the rest of the community. But safety week is the first week of May and should be a good one this year. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everybody. And we will catch you probably in a month's time. I was like, who is who is screwing with the radio over there? <laughs> oh my god, we've been hacked. <laughs> nice. Good timing, almost. My bad. <laughs> Are we gonna see it's the dancing around the bench that. again? Yeah, he's uh you're no Fred Norris, that's for sure, Shannon, but we appreciate the <laughs> Sorry. <effort. laughs> Alright, thanks everybody for hanging out with us and we'll catch you next time. See ya. See y'all. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.